Lord's put on your heart. Good morning. We will be looking at Micah chapter 7. And while you're turning there, as usual, I'd like to greet you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It is His power and in His name that we come to worship. And we come to read His holy word and to hear it preached. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Let's go to the word and let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you this Sabbath day, and Lord, we give you thanks for our risen Savior. Lord, that He triumphantly rose from the grave. And Lord, we come today to pay homage to Christ alone. Father, we ask that You would grant us Your Spirit in full measure, that we would be filled by Your Spirit, Lord, and edified by Your strength, knowing that it is not by strength nor by power, but by Your Spirit, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be a people to receive Your Word with meekness this morning. Would you use this man to preach your word with boldness and clarity and simplicity? And Father, we pray that your word would continue to transform us. Father, help us to see your great mercy in Christ. We beg you in his name. Amen. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is The Majesty of Mercy. And just as we were reading in the book of Jeremiah, we oftentimes find a spiritual descent into the mire. For the lives of believer, believers and the lives of believers in a country, we find ourselves to be in a time of exile, a spiritual exile, where few seem to be worshiping God in this once vestige of a Christian republic. And oftentimes we find ourselves to be like Elijah, looking around and wondering, is anyone left? We find in our text here, where Micah is preaching to a people of the coming Babylonian exile, and then being taken away from their land, and yet he promises them by God's mercy to bring them back again. So we will find that the great hope for us and the spiritual mire that we find ourselves in is the great majestic mercy of God which is found in Christ. So this sermon will go an outline of three points. One, we will look at God's covenantal mercy, which is in verse 18. Two, we will look at the new covenant blessings in verse 19. And three, we will look at God's covenantal faithfulness. So we begin in verse 18, and it reads as follows. Who is like unto thee? 
Micah is here preaching to these people after his whole long discourse of telling them that they're going out into exile and now the mercies that God's going to bring to them and restoring Israel. And he looks around and he says, Who is like thee? He says to Yahweh, to God, Who is like thee? This is the most fundamental expression or confession of the Christian. When we look at God, when we look at Yahweh, we say, Who is like thee? And the answer is, no one. Not a single one. Go, open the doors. Bring in all the gods from Greece. Bring in all the gods of Persia. All the gods of Babylon. Bring them all in. All the gods of the atheists. Bring them in. Set them on a scale over here. God's not coming to set Himself on the other scale because He is compared to no one. There is no one who can even get on a scale to God. Because He is holy. He is righteous. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. There are no scales. God is not on the dock. He's not in a courtroom. No one can lift a finger to God. And this is the beauty of the Christian religion. This is our confession. Who is like thee? What does Isaiah say? To whom then, or sorry, excuse me, God says to Isaiah, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal? There are no comparisons to God. There are only contrasts. We are only contrasted with God. There is no one who is even similar or even close to the majesty of God. And the reason this is important is when we look at God's mercy, who He is matters. Who He is and His majesty of His person matters when He shows His people mercy. That is what comforts them. When we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, What other God has done something like this? Where He speaks everything into existence. Out of nothing. And everything, all of creation, forms and comes into existence. The mountains are lifted up and the seas are are put in their place. What other God has done something like this? Who is like unto thee, we should say, every single day? Who is like unto thee? Well, all these Greek gods, these Persian gods, the gods of Nebuchadnezzar, what are they? Paul says... We know that an idol is nothing in the world, but that there is none other God but one. You can go to a museum. You can see all the statues of these false gods throughout the ages, and there they are, lie dead. You can go and you can see all the tombs of pharaohs and the Caesars who have declared themselves to be the sons of God, and there's their name, and there you can go and you can see their bones. They're dead in the grave. Where's our carpenter God? Can you go and find his bones? Christ is risen from the grave. I saw this. My friend showed me this stupid TikTok video. And this woman said, Oh, I can't believe that people don't believe in God. Look, they just went into the Middle East. They found Jesus' bones. How do people not believe in God? What? Are you kidding me? Do you not know that Christ rose? His bones are in the grave. His bones are with Him in heaven right now, seated at the right hand of God. Spurgeon says that in history, God is always declaring that I am God, and besides me, there is no other. Every tomb of the Caesars and Pharaohs that you go to, He says, I am God, and besides me, there is no other. Every statue of any God that's ever been made, That falls down and breaks. It crumbles because it's made by man. God is declaring, I am God and besides me there is no other. 
Who is like unto thee? It matters who God is. But how is God different in this text? Yeah, we can look at God being different in His creative power, that none, none can be compared to Him with all these other gods. But in this text, the prophet Micah is doing something very specific here. How is God different? Well, the text goes on to say, "...that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by transgressions." This is specifically how God is different here, according to the Spirit of God, through Micah. Many pagan gods attempt to mirror the Almighty's power. They attempt to replicate the Sovereign's reign. But you will never find a God who will mimic the Lord's mercy or pardoning grace. Not a single one. You can go up to Mount Olympus and you won't find Aphrodite weeping for anyone. You can go down to to, to Greece and you won't find Zeus coming down once to suffer for his people. You can go over to the Middle East and Allah has never condescended to man to speak to him. What about Buddha? Did Buddha bleed for anybody? No, because Buddha is a stupid spiritual misty thing. Buddha didn't bleed for anybody. How is God different? How, how can anyone be compared to a God that pardons iniquity and passes by transgressions? Jesus Christ came and died in the flesh. What other God did that? This is the hope of the Christian here. That there is none who can be compared to God and that God came down and died. And He rose again from the grave. None other God can be compared to a God like this. This is great hope for the Christian. Because God did not leave us in our stupid, sinful state to just perish. Like all these other pagan gods. They don't care for you. It's like that image that you see of a leader. Where the leader is up on his throne and he's whipping the people to move them along. No. Christ is in the front lines. That's what Christ came to do. That's the compassion that God has for people. That's the mercy that God has. Though all these other gods sit on their high-rise apartments, they sit up on Mount Olympus. Only Yahweh condescended to man. Only He came to us to save us. This is great hope for the Christian. This is great hope for the the Israelite who's about to go into exile. And why is that? Because their Savior will come and meet them. He will meet them and He will restore them. This is the most astounding relationship between holy God and sinful man. It's that God has a pardoning grace for sinners. David experienced this in his own subjective life when he prayed in Psalm 32, Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He prayed the same thing, but corporately for the people of Israel in Psalm 85 too. And it says, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all of their sins. This is how God is different. He pardons His people. A pardoning is, in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a lifting up. So the sin that we have is lifted up and taken away from our account. And we'll see later, it's cast into the sea. So God pardons His people. How do you classify the Muslim of Islam? He's a strong conqueror. He's a warrior. How do you, how do you classify the Buddhist? It's an enlightened mystic. How do you classify the Christian? Forgiven. Pardoned. Receiving the grace of God. This 
is the greatest reality of being a Christian. Do you want hope in your life? God pardoned all of your debts. Does your marriage seem to be failing and you can't just seem to love your, your wife like the Bible commands you to love her? God pardoned you and He will pardon all of your sins and He will keep and sustain you. Wives, can you not submit to your husbands, right, according to the Scriptures? God has pardoned all of your sins. All of them are done away with. He passes by every transgression. Children, do you have a hard time submitting to your father and loving them well? Well, God will pardon every single one of your sins and give you help and aid for everything you need. This is such an important and practical aspect of Christianity, that God pardons iniquity and he passes by transgressions. So how exactly does he pardon men? He does this only through his electing grace through his son on the cross. You see this in Romans chapter 3, that God, he, uh, uh, that Jesus Christ propitiated the wrath of the Father. He satisfied God's divine wrath. And now, God is both just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. So God maintains his justice and righteousness because the believer receives the perfect, blameless righteousness of Christ. And his sins are taken away from him. So God justifies man and he's just to do so. I love the way Benjamin Keach puts it in this catechism. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God, having out of his mere good pleasure from eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. I love that last line. He does it by a redeemer, by Christ. It's not like Allah where he just willy-nilly glances over your sins on that great day of judgment. He'll either be favorable to you or not be favorable. This is security for the Christian here. This is your assurance here. How do you know you're saved? Have you believed on Christ? Has He pardoned you of your debts? We often wallow in our sins for far too long forgetting that God has pardoned us. We need to be a people who remember that God, His grace has pardoned us and He's delivered us from all of our transgressions. This is security for the Christian. And this, who is His pardoning grace for? The text goes on to say, it's for the remnant of His heritage. The remnant of His heritage can only be truly said to be of God's elect. It can only truly be said to be those who are united to Christ by faith and made sons of Abraham. It's just as a father who says to his children, You are my heritage. I'm leaving you my legacy. God, our Father, does the same to us. He says, You're the remnant of my heritage. You are mine. You belong to me. You see this, the vestiges of this in Exodus 15. Uh, where it reads, Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance. That's what Yahweh does. That's what God does. He plants us in the mountain of his inheritance. We are brought into his land. It's as a father who leaves a land inheritance for his sons. We're brought into that great country. That's what Abraham saw in, in Hebrews chapter 11, afar off, the heavenly city, the heavenly country. That's his inheritance. That's where he belongs with his father who's in heaven. 
We need to be a people who recognize the possession that God has over us. He owns us. Yes, as slaves, but as sons. And this is the greatest encouragement to the Christian because we can go to God and say, Our Father. Not once is Allah ever called Father in all the Quran. Not a single time. But God has made us sons. By His power, He's made us sons. We've been born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but we've been born of God into His family. This is the greatest encouragement for the Christian. So when God says, the remnant of my heritage, those are the people who I pass by their sins, we should say He's passed by my sins. This is what Solomon says in the Song of Solomons, or rather the woman says it. My beloved is mine, and I am His. This is the heart of the relation that we have with God. We say, my beloved is mine. He's planted me in the mountain of His inheritance. He's mine, and I'm His. It's not this weird chasing relationship where we're constantly in this mode of chasing after God, trying to get our lover to to truly show affection to us. No, this is not some gay fantasy novel. This is Yahweh who shows intimate love towards His children. And we love Him. And this is the relationship that we ought to have with God, that we look at Him and we say, My beloved is mine, and I am His. Matthew Henry says well here, God's people are a pardoned people, and to this they owe their all. Just as Doug was talking about with Romans chapter 9, a common objection to Calvinism as well is if God's predestined all these things and He's brought salvation to me, I'm still living in sin. You know, how do I reconcile that if I'm living in sin? Well, the Bible does not accept the concept or the construction of a carnal Christian. When God pardons you and your sin's been lifted up from you, you're free from it. That's what Romans 5 and 6 talks much about, that the grace of God reigns in us through righteousness. So there's no room for carnal Christians There's no room for a people who say, my beloved is mine, yet I also still have a a wife uh, or a, a side chick over here. That's not the relationship that we have. There's no other gods that we we go and worship. Remember what happened with Achan when he, uh, he, he hoarded gold in his house and he buried it after God had said, don't take anything? He had an idol. What happened to him? God snuffed him out. That's the attitude that we have as Christians, is that there is no one else. When we say, who is like unto thee? What we mean when we say that is, no one and you're my only one. That's the heart of a Christian. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are our only one. That's the only one we worship. That's the only one that we aim to please. So for me as a carpenter, when I go and swing a hammer, I'm glorifying Him. When you drive a truck, you're glorifying Him. When you're changing a diaper, you're glorifying Him. When you're selling insurance, you're glorifying Him. Anything that you do ought to be done for the glory of God. Everything you do, you should say, My beloved is mine, and I am His. That's what it means to live as a pardoned person. The text goes on to say, That he he retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. 
Now, this is actually the reason I chose this text. <laughs> when I was reading through this, it just it caught me. It stuck to me. How great a verse do we have here? That God retains not His anger forever because He delights in mercy. Now, how and in what way does God have a disposition or um, a desire to show mercy and not have His anger retained? Well, there's different ways you can understand this. A heretic might say that God only shows love to His creatures, so therefore He shows mercy to everybody. He's not angry at people. God doesn't show anger or wrath. He's love. He's mercy. So He shows mercy to all. Now, obviously, that's not biblical. The second way you can understand this, as Arminians would like to think, is that God is a cosmic puppy dog who's just waiting for us to throw the frisbee. But how does an orthodox, orthodox understand this verse? We think that God does not retain His anger and He shows mercy to the remnant of His heritage. You see, the whole verse, Micah is showing us who God shows mercy to. He's giving these people who are going into exile great hope of the merciful God. He's not giving the Babylonians hope here. You see that? <laughs> because he's not giving the Babylonians hope, we can start to you know, piece these things together and show that God is angry with them, the Babylonians, but he's merciful towards his people, the remnant of his heritage. And this is the biggest blessing for the Christian, that God's anger is not retained forever. In Psalm 7, it says that God is angry at the wicked every single day. That is terrifying. Yeah. Well, I sin though, right? So, aren't I wicked? No, that's not how the Bible classifies you. At the same time that you're a sinner, you are just. You're a Christian, which means that God's grace, His pardoning grace has intervened into your life. And that is God showing you that He loves you. That He's going to have mercy to you. And you notice that. It's not just God has mercy to you in this one-time event and that you're justified before Him by faith. That's not it at all. It's well, Excuse me, it is that, but it's much more than that. It's not just this one-time act of God showing mercy to you. God is, mercy every, is merciful every single day to you. That's why the Scripture says His mercies are what? It's new every morning. Every single morning, God's mercies are rich and great to you. I've been trying to get in the habit of, even as a carpenter, going out and working in the cold, I say, thank you, Lord, you've been merciful to me today. Going out and working on a roof while it's raining, thank you, Lord, you've been merciful to me today. Every single thing that God does to us is a mercy. Why? Because we're His children. And that's why when the text says in Romans 8, He works out all things together for the good. Uh, for good for those who uh, are loved are called according to his purposes. What that text is getting at is that reality right there. Though he brings the rain. For Jeremiah, though he sinks him down into the mire. For Joseph, though he's uh, cast away from his brothers and his fathers and he's thrown into the pit. That is God's mercy. God meant that for good. So we, th- we see ourselves in a time of exile in our land. This is God's mercy. God is doing a great thing. And if He were to tell us what He's doing today and tomorrow, we wouldn't believe Him. God is doing a great, merciful act towards His children. As we've already read in Romans chapter 9, God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. 
and he hardens whom he will harden. We see Pharaoh over here whose God's anger is retained on. His anger is fixed on Pharaoh. And yet we see over here Moses and Israel and God's mercy is triumphing over them. So we see here that God is angry at the wicked every single day. But for his children, God is not up in the clouds waiting to throw stones at you every single time you fall down. God wants and is willing and will delight to show you mercy every single day. That is a blessing as a Christian. It's interesting, uh, in the next book over, so you have Micah who's prophesying to the Babylon, uh, the, Uh, Israelites who are about to go into the Babylonian exile. And then you have Nahum in the next book. And he's prophesying against Nineveh, who are not retaining their repentance that they once had with the prophet Jonah. And you see at the end of the book of Nahum, it has a completely different flow than the end here in the book of Micah. Micah ends with great hope. But when you go to the prophet Nahum, at the very end it reads this. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not the wickedness passed continually. There's no hope for Nineveh. Because God's covenant promises is not upon them. They are not the remnant of his heritage. But there's great hope here for the Israelites in the time of Micah. There's great mercy that God will delight to show His people. What attitude do we have? Do we think we're Nineveh? Where God's going to come in and wipe them out? Or do we think that we're going in a time of exile and God's going to show His mercy through it? That's the attitude that we ought to have as Christians. Not defeatism, but optimism. Hopefulness. That God will show mercy to His people. Matthew Henry says again, Against those that are not of the remnant of his heritage, that are unpardoned, he will keep his anger forever. No doubt when Paul is wrestling in his mind in Romans 9 over all of his kinsmen according to the flesh who don't know Christ, no doubt something like this would be in his mind. That God's mercy, which he delights to show, is upon his children but his anger is upon those who do not believe in him. And no doubt that's what drew Paul to despair in some senses. So do we despair? Do we have this sort of anguish over the loss of our family members or loved ones or friends or co-workers? We should despair over their salvation, but not over the hopefulness of the situation. Because God does delight to show mercy. If He delighted to show mercy to you as a sinner and bring you out of darkness into light, that just shows us that God is in the habit of redeeming sinful mankind. We ought to have that attitude as well. And we ought to live in the light of God's mercy here. God delights to show us mercy. Again, it is so important to remember, He does not want to just cast us into hell every single moment. God loves us because He loves His Son. And in that way we say, My beloved is mine, and I am His. Now the second section of this 
sermon is the new covenant blessings, and we're looking at verse 19. And it begins by saying, He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. So if you notice here, it says, will. This is pointing to something future. It's pointing to something greater than the situation that they find themselves in. So when is this? When is this will here? Well, I would contend that there's two ways to understand this. Just as Pastor Doug earlier alluded that there is immediate fulfillment and there is future fulfillment. Now, the immediate fulfillment is God is promising something to these people who are going into the Babylonian exile, that he will restore them, he'll bring them back into the land. But much more than that, what he is truly prophesying here, the ultimate meaning of this text, of God will turn again and have compassion upon us, is this is the Messiah's, Christ's, reign and government. That's been the whole theme in the book of Micah. If you want to turn to chapter 4, you, you may. But in chapter 4, Micah is promising the reign of the Messiah where he will come to, this is in chapter 4, teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then in Micah 5, 2, he says, this is prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. But thou, Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been of old from everlasting. So when, when will God turn again? Will, when will he have compassion upon his people? This is when Christ comes. This is when Christ manifests to the people the glory of the Father in pardoning grace by Him going to the cross and dying for the sins of His people. I'm convinced that sometimes we look too much in the New Testament to find the New Covenant when there's so much of the Old Covenant that's promised in the Old Testament. We must be a people who read the Old Testament so that we see all these glorious promises. Yes, some of these are quoted in the New Testament, but a lot of them aren't. A lot of them aren't. The New Covenant is like sand on a shore throughout the Old Testament. There's not much looking. It's all throughout it. God will turn again and have compassion upon them in the rule and reign of King Jesus. As He's lifting up His own people from their state of sin. And just as Brother alluded to earlier, in Jeremiah's being lifted up. In His own redemption, this is Christ's work in Him. And this, Jesus has a habit of doing that even for us today. He's constantly li- lifting us up from the mire of our, our own situation. The prophet Micah here is using this post-exilic return from Babylon to the restoration of the land. He's using it like an, you would an open window. He's looking through it and he's seeing the dawning of the glorious new covenant The glorious gospel where Christ is going to come and rule and reign and subdue our sins and conquer the world. That's what he's doing. He's looking through the exile. So that's why when when the brother talked earlier about there being an immediate fulfillment and then a future fulfillment, that's really what's happening there. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this passage. This is showing the new covenant blessings. What did the old covenant promise them? Those who don't follow and or confirm the words of this law, they're cursed forever. So how does God, how will He turn again and have compassion upon these people who continually sin after, sin after other gods? Well, He does it by the new covenant. He does it by the glorious grace of Christ and the gospel. 
Our text goes on to say that Jesus will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Who has this power to, who has this power to forgive? It's only God alone. When Jesus was healing the paralytic, and he says, Go, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are up in arms. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They get mad at Jesus. They think he's blaspheming. What is Jesus' response? He says, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power upon earth to forgive sins. Who subdues our iniquities? Who casts them into into the depths of the sea? It is King Jesus. It is King Jesus who does this. It's no one else. It is the work of our triune God, of the Father, who's foreknown and elected us, of the Son who's come and has died on the cross in the Spirit, who applies this great work of redemption to us. It is God, it is Yahweh who does this, and no one else. This goes back to the beginning. Who is like thee? Who can forgive sins? Who passes by transgressions? It's Christ alone. The God of the Pharisees couldn't do it. He only condemned them. The God of the true Israelite, Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, He subdues their sins. This is the conquering Lamb. And how does He subdue our iniquities? Isaiah 53, But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Wherefore, He's also able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. All the promises of salvation of these false gods, they don't live anymore. Jesus ever lives to bring us this salvation. His promises are sure because He's of everlasting. He's from of old. And yet He's promised these things to us. So only Jesus subdues our iniquities. So let me ask you this. Do you rely on Him to subdue your iniquities? Have you begun by the Spirit and now you're trying to purify yourself by the flesh? Do you have sins that you contend with and you struggle with and you think, it's by my power and it's by my might that I overcome it? Even as a Christian, I say you're a fool. There is no way to overcome your sin at the beginning of your Christian life and even today than by the almighty power of King Jesus. Only He has the rule and reign. Only He has the jurisdiction to say, no, enough. Only He can pardon you. You can't do it yourself. All you can do for pardon is petition. If you stand before a king and you have a list of offenses... All you can say is, Lord, have mercy. That is all we do as Christians, is we say, Lord, have mercy upon me. And do you remember what we just read? He delights to show you mercy. So when we petition King Jesus, He is not a king with His scepter in hand who wants to just swipe at you and kick you off His throne, or on the steps of His throne. What He wants to do is say, Yes, you have your wish. You're pardoned. It's like that the, the parable of the widow who goes before the king every single day and he ends up getting annoyed with her. He's like, all right, away with you. You have your wish. And Jesus doesn't even treat us like that. He delights to show us mercy. 
So do you want your sins to be subdued? Do you want to live a holy life before not only your, your uh, brothers, but your family and those outside far off? Turn to King Jesus. That's all you must do is to look to him and you will find salvation there. Both at the beginning and now as a Christian. We need to get away with all these antinomian sentiments that Christ lifts you up from your sins and he sends you on your merry way to just go and choose either good or evil. That is not what Christ does. Christ saved you as a whole man to follow the whole Christ. If you are a carnal Christian, you are saying that your Savior is a carnal Savior. And you dare not do Jesus that offense. Jesus is a perfect Savior and He does away with all carnality. The third thing here is God's covenantal faithfulness. And this is verse 20. The text reads, Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham. These are some of the most blessed words again in the Bible that God will do something. Whenever the Bible says will, you need to get your pen out or your pencil and you need to circle that. That God will do something. And then you need to write it down on a little note card, and you need to put that aside on your desk or wherever you read at so that you can pray through that. When God says He will do something, that is where you should find courage to pray. King David, after God had given him a promise, he said, now your servant has found courage to pray. That's the attitude we have. So circle this in your Bible. Circle this whole section. (laughs) And pray through this. That God will do these things. So God will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham. These promises are as sure to happen as the sun rising. These promises are as sure to happen as when God spoke and said, Let there be light, that there was light. The same God who spoke those words spoke these words. God will perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham. It is in God's nature to never change. This is called immutability. He doesn't change. Therefore, when He promises something, every single time, rest assured, it always will come to pass. A beautiful verse in Titus 1-2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. God promised us eternal life. So when we go to heaven, we should not think, oh, am I going to be condemned? Am I going to be thrown away into, uh, just as a, uh, a trash into a trash, ba- trash bag? Is that the attitude we have? Or do we say with Paul and have assurance that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ? This is your assurance, Christian. Do you struggle with knowing if you are saved? If you belong to Him? God will perform these truths. If you come to Him, He will pardon you. In Malachi 3.6 it says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So all these promises that God has given to, as we see in our text, to Jacob and to Abraham here, He's not going to throw away His promises. In fact, in Romans, it says that he repents not. He changes not in his covenantal purposes. When he promises by way of covenant, or in any promise, 
It always happens. He doesn't ever throw it away. So if there came a point in time when God looked at you and said, you're mine, there's never going to come a point where He says, actually you're not. When you're His, guess what? You're His forevermore. And therefore, you're not consumed. That is the beauty of the text of Malachi. You're not consumed. Why? Because God changes not. When He promises salvation to you, He gives it to you. Calvin says that these two things, the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, are highlighting the nature of the new covenant. That they're showing that God will perform His purposes, as it says. He will do it because God is truth. He will perform the truth claims that He's given to us. And also, He will give us mercy. Why? Because as our text has already indicated, He delights to show mercy. That's in His nature. That's what it means for Him to pardon. God doesn't pardon people without any mercy. And God doesn't have any mercy without pardoning people. God pardons people. This is the nature of the new covenant. That the truth that He's given to Jacob, He will do these things. And the mercy that He's given to Abraham, He will do these things today. Today He will do them. There's your hope for bleakness. Though the clouds of gloom go over our Christian church today, there's your hope. God will have mercy. That's the hope for us. He will perform the truth to Jacob, and He will show mercy to Abraham and all of Abraham's children. And the text continues to go on, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Even now, thousands upon thousands of years later, to us, we look back and we see these promises to Abraham. We see the promise to Adam and Eve that there will come a a time where someone will crush the serpent's head. And what do we say? Yes and amen. Most people in academia, they say, that was so long ago. Like, how do you know it was written by man? How do you know that that was preserved? What's our response to that? Does God need preserving? You die. He doesn't die. Am I going to trust you who's going to be gone in 50 more years? Or am I going to trust Yahweh who's been here from the beginning? Who am I going to trust? And when you put it in that light, they just look stupid. But when they're around all their friends, you look stupid. But do not answer the fool according to his folly. God has sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. And notice that we can say, our fathers. Abraham's my father. How? Well, Paul says in Galatians that whoever believes in God is a son of Abraham. It's not the physical descendancy of Abraham. It's those who have faith, who are accounted the the, uh, promised seed. That's the spiritual seed of Abraham. So, away with the dispensationalism that says we can't sing that song about Abraham being our father. But also away with the replacement theology that Israel is cast over here. Israel is not cast aside. As the brother alluded to in Romans 11, we're engrafted in to that covenant. The wall of partition in Ephesians has been laid aside. It's been toppled over. Now there's no more Jew or Gentile. But we're all one in Christ. We all come to the same covenant promises and blessings that God has said of old. It's not a foreign or distant God in the Old Testament. And then we have Jesus as the God in the New. 
It's the one same God who's been working throughout all history. And this is why Jesus was the rock who followed them in the wilderness. Or as Jude says, that Jesus is the one who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God, the singular God, the same God in the Old Testament as in the New, the same God is working mercy for us just like He was in Micah's day. Though it might look bleak for us, or though we might go into a time of prosperity, what do we say? God, your mercy is the one that pardons us. Your mercy is the one that got us here. We ought always to pay homage to Jesus Christ alone. And oftentimes you forget to do that. When in the Old Testament do the people of Israel sin and fall away? It's when they stop saying with their lips, Thank you, Lord. That's when we start falling away. That's when we reject God, is when we stop saying thank you. Praise is the only proper response to sinful, fallen, worm-like creatures like us who are redeemed by grace. That's the only proper response. We praise God. Though we can't even get our words right or say it right, we always mess up. We praise God, and what does He do? He accepts our praise. Why? Because He will turn again and have compassion upon us. So don't think about having all the right words or being able to say all, articulate all the proper theological doctrines. God's interested in that, but God is not most interested in that. What He wants is a contrite heart. He wants a person who's broken before Him, who says, just like the blind man, we would throw stones at the blind man today. He said, I don't know who did it. It's just, I, I know I was blind and now I see. Oh, don't you know that's Jesus, the hypostatic, the hypostatic union and the second person of the Trinity? Yeah. No, he said, I don't know. I was blind and now I see. Now, don't mishear me. We ought to have good, precise articulations of, of what the faith is. But all I'm saying is we shouldn't throw stones at younger brothers and sisters who don't know how to articulate the faith right. right. From Adam all the way to us, the covenant of grace has shown its blessing and has brought about the reign of grace to God's people. In God performing the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, we can truly then say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So here's some concluding thoughts, even though we've already harped on it a little bit. Though we're found in a time of spiritual exile, though you might individually be found in a valley, stooped and steeped in your own sin, you must remember that God delights to show mercy, that he loves his own. And in case you ever forget and you ever doubt God's love, look at the cross. Look at Calvary and see Jesus Christ hanging there. See him bit, uh, beaten and stricken, mocked at and spat at. And then see yourself as Barabbas. I was the man that was let go. I was the man that was pardoned. So no more wallowing in your sin. No more wallowing in the exile that we find ourselves in. But let's find hope in the great mercy of God. Amen.
Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for the great mercy that you've shown us in your Son. Lord, we know that we did not deserve an ounce of the blood of Christ. Lord, we know that even the smallest fraction of his blood has saved us. But Lord, you've poured us and sprinkled us and washed us entirely clean with his blood. Lord, we thank you that these great promises that you will perform these things, the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham applies to us. That your new covenant, this dawning grace to us, has shown, and it has shown in our hearts, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would continue to be ministering your word to this people. And Lord, that as we leave this week, that we would sing praises to you in our workplaces, to our families. And Lord, to the community around us, that we would share your word and truth. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.